and welcome. You are listening to the Healing After Birth podcast. This is Jennifer Sommerfeld from JS Coaching, author and creator of the Healing After Birth program. This podcast is for you if you can relate to any of the following statements. Are you a mother who is struggling in the postpartum? Did you have a difficult, challenging, or traumatic childbirth experience? Do you want to learn more about postpartum mental health? Do you want to cultivate healthy, thriving relationships? And do you want to take charge of your healing journey? This podcast includes both interviews by professionals in the field of maternal health, as well as vulnerable stories shared by everyday mothers like you. Let's begin. So welcome to the Healing After Birth podcast. This is Jennifer Sommerfeld, your host, author and creator of the Healing After Birth program. In today's podcast, I have guest with me, Mandy Remfer Cuncio, and Mandy is passionate about the pelvis. And so she's the creator of the Birth Better series for childbirth preparation and a sought after speaker. Mandy is a pelvic health physiotherapist and birth doula here in Edmonton, Alberta. She's professionally, she loves serving women through her physiotherapy clinic, Nurture Her, which focuses on pre and postpartum care. The team at Nurture Her can help with many challenges that women face, including incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, dias oh, I'm not going to say this right, diastasis recti, birth injury, and pain during pregnancy or afterwards, including sexual pain. You can also find Mandy at supportyourcore.ca, where she helps bring products that support a strong core to women everywhere. Mandy is also a devoted, or I'm sorry, she's also devoted to women's health and wellness because she too lives in a woman's body. As a mother of three, she also intimately understands the physical challenges and joys that come along with the journey of motherhood. Mandy has a big dream for a strong world, full of strong families and strong mothers. You can connect further with Mandy and her course offerings and blog full of free videos and education at nurtureher.ca and find products at supportyourcore.ca. You can also find Mandy on Facebook at slash nurtureher1 and Instagram uh, at slash core.believers. And all of these links will be up on the bio for this podcast. So I would like to welcome Mandy uh, for joining me today on our podcast to talk about pelvic floor health, motherhood, and healing. Awesome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you actually about your experience as a pelvic floor physiotherapist and you know, a good place to start is what inspired you to take this on? And just just as a, before you answer that question, you know, when I had my kids, there wasn't a buzz around pelvic floor health. And I remember it wasn't until my third, who's now 13, um, when I was in Winnipeg, that we started to talk about pelvic floor health. And there was one physiotherapist that 
that did specialize in it. And so it seems to have really boomed since then. So I just wanted to also highlight that. And that's why I'm like really curious about where our conversation is going to (laughs) go. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, most of us who go to physio school aren't really imagining that we'll be working in the field of pelvic health. And so much so that in in the basic degree, especially when I took it, there isn't even really any training in pelvic health whatsoever. So for the vast majority of pelvic health physiotherapists, this is after degree training that you Mm. do. I mean, most of us think we're going to be working with the athletes at the Olympics or, you know, maybe in in brain injury rehab and Mm. stroke rehab or spinal cord rehab. That's often where the public sees much of the work that physio does. But Mm -hmm. pelvic health is this, you know, important, vital, necessary piece of women's health. And I, yeah, I've been a pelvic health therapist for 10 years and I would say it was just coming on my radar around that time, which would be similar to your 13-year-old, right? Like mm-hmm. it was a while before it it was sort of really well-known. And my first experience with it was actually as a patient. Mm-hmm. And at that time in Edmonton, there were very few practitioners. There was a little bit of work being done out of the Royal Alex Hospital. And then for private centers, there was a little bit of work being done out of um, a clinic on the West End. And that was really it. Um, so it wasn't related to motherhood why I went there in the first place. I was just having pain in my pelvis and mm. <laughs> I needed some help, but I went on to get pregnant and then I had a baby mm. and isn't that amazing how our babies changed <laughs> everything? Mm. Um, yeah, sort of that first birth for me was quite traumatic mm. and as many, unfortunately births are out there, but mm. At that time, I really valued and still value, but my physical health. And so I realized right away that things weren't right after my cesarean section. And I thought, I know somebody who does this work from before. I'm going to pop in and, and get some help. And I did. And that was, you know, very valuable for me at that time. But then once my daughter got a little older and she was about nine months old and I needed to go back to work. I was actually looking for a new physio job. And I went to that clinic where I had been a patient because I really liked my therapist and she was a a very experienced therapist and I wanted the mentorship. And she at that time said, sure, you can work for me, but you have to do pelvic health. (laughs) Hmm. And I was like, where previously in my career, I may not have been as open to that. I realized, you know, the value of having been a patient myself. And I thought, okay, cool, Hmm. let's do this. And so I jumped in and it's, I've never looked back. It's been just the best professional journey ever for me. And I I love the pelvis, as you mentioned in my bio. And Hmm. I'm really happy to be working in this field now. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And like so many of us, right, we get catapulted into our passion or our career because of our own personal experiences. And um, that lead us into that. Yeah. And I think for therapists, especially, right, Mm -hmm. like as for physios, many physios are motivated by experiences in their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that physical piece of it, thankfully for me, was really um, a piece I could incorporate into my career. It was already there. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I have like five questions that are just, you know, popcorning up for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but one that I think would be really um, helpful for our listeners to understand is that you said that your first birth was a cesarean and then you went for pelvic floor physio. And I mm-hmm. think sometimes we have a like a disconnect between that idea that why would I need pelvic floor physio if I had a cesarean birth? Yeah, that's a, a great point as well. I think um, one of the imp- important places to start in describing this is actually that pelvic floor physios do a whole lot more than the pelvic floor. Mm. So although we've taken extra training to be able to work with the pelvis on the outside and the inside, which is what, you know, first of all, sets us apart. So maybe I should start there. Like what is a pelvic floor physiotherapist, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. (laughs) 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 So we are regular physiotherapists. We have the same full body training in orthopedics, in, you know, neurology and cardiorespiratory ailments. So we can still treat the entire body like, you know, a knee or an ankle (laughs) or, you know, a neck after a a whiplash and a car accident. But then we go on to take special training with the muscles of the pelvic floor, which are really um, all on the inside, right? They they need to be assessed and, and treated a little bit differently. So there's extra training so that we can do both a vaginal exam for that as well as a rectal exam. But really what pelvic floor specialists do so well is they look at the whole core. So we actually don't even really piece out the pelvic floor alone. We look at it in what I call the core canister. So the core canister to me includes the pelvis and the pelvic floor on the bottom, but it also includes your abdominal wall on the front and sides. And then if you could imagine sort of the top of the canister, the lid being the diaphragm, and then the back being your deep spinal stabilizing muscles. And so What we know is that those four pieces of that core canister do not work in isolation. Really, I mean, nothing in the body Mm -hmm. works in isolation. Mm -hmm. We are are meant to be these whole, complete, amazing (laughs) works of art. But I do, as a pelvic health therapist, I like to look at the pelvic floor perhaps in that whole context. And I can't look at it without looking at the abdominals and without looking at the diaphragm and without looking at the spine. Mm -hmm. And when you look at pregnancy it affects so much of your gore canister, literally every piece of it. Mm. So no matter your mode of birth, your entire core has been influenced by your pregnancy. In fact, pregnancy is is one of the biggest challenges the pelvic floor and your abdominal wall will ever face. Mm-hmm. And, and birth is probably the biggest challenge both of those will face. So with a cesarean birth, you're still very much influencing the core canister by that, you know, influence mm. on the abdominal wall. But you've also just completed your weeks of pregnancy. So nine plus months of influence on the pelvic floor as well, because your pelvic floor was challenged by carrying the load of not only your abdominal organs, which it does on a day-to-day basis, but now your placenta and your amniotic fluid and your growing baby. And so really the loads and demands on your pelvic floor and your abdominal wall increase throughout the duration of your pregnancy. And it doesn't really matter which mode of birth you've experienced. You've experienced challenge to all components of that core canister. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, I have another question. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, from your professional opinion, what you have to say about pushing. 
Oh, yes. Pushing. <laughs> so I'm just going to dive right in. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you bring it up. It's actually something I do a lot of teaching about mm. being women prenatally. Um, first of all, I will say I don't think we have any research that's decent in terms of what happens in the biomechanics of pushing. Like, obviously, as a physiotherapist, I, I do take somewhat of a biomechanical mm-hmm perspective but I also like to think about kind of what's happening with the organs themselves and the physiology right in addition to the biomechanics and we do know that the uterus is amazing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it is completely (laughs) capable of birthing babies entirely on its own and we know (laughs) this from women who are in comas or who are unconscious, you know, at the time of labor, Mm -hmm. labor will still initiate and babies are still born. Right. So to me, that says that, you know, physiologically, it's absolutely possible to birth without an active push, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what happens to change that situation so much? And I have a number of thoughts. Okay, good. <laughs> on, I won't jump in until you're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll highlight a couple of them. Mm. Um, I guess to start with, one of the big factors to me is that, yes, we know the uterus is the strongest muscle in the human body. I, I believe pound for pound, it can generate more force mm-hmm. than any other muscle. Yeah, that's what I was uh, taught as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. unless you're a guy, and then it's the tongue. <laughs> but for us, we have this amazing <laughs> the, Did you say right? the tongue? Yeah, that's oh, the second one. I haven't heard that. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, so to me you know, sometimes we actually have to just decrease the resistance that the uterus is working against. So we actually kind of have to just get out of the uterus's way. Mm. And I know that's an overly simplistic description. But to me, when I'm looking at birth preparation physically, one of the things I look for are there areas of resistance in the body that are going to work against the work of the uterus. And so just to clarify, you are referring to physical resistance, not I am. necessarily yes. Although, psychological resistance. However, I would totally acknowledge that that is a very important piece. Okay. But from my perce- professional scope, okay. the little piece that I kind of incorporate in, in my teaching is, um, yeah, looking at that, at that <laughs> usually muscular resistance, although it could be connected tissue. But yeah, physically is what <laughs> the piece that I, I treat with. So we want to decrease that resistance that's working against the uterus. Now, sometimes um, that's really hard to do. For example, that could be scar tissue mm. from a previous birth or, you know, it could be something that's not that yielding. Or Can I also can... interject with mm-hmm. scar tissue from um, like a leap procedure yeah. and okay because or if you're even a, even if a, a cesarean if you're going for a v-back mm-hmm. or you know something like that could be or an appendectomy mm-hmm. or something that's you know mm-hmm. working within that core canister there are many many things that can cause scar tissue it might even be a previous tailbone injury from mm-hmm. you know slipping on the ice or mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. skiing or snowboarding or something like that there are many things that can cause that mm-hmm. um so Sometimes I think we need to push, we need to add this accessory force beyond what the uterus does 
in order to compensate and get past some of that resistance. Mm. So all what I usually like to do is try and decrease the resistance as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But then I do recognize that there are cases and some of them are biomechanical that create the resistance. For example, women birthing on their backs and we can talk about the biomechanics of that. But Mm -hmm. sometimes I do feel it is necessary to push, particularly in in our North American Western way of birthing. Um, But then I get really hung up on <laughs> sort of the amount of force we push with because we have in Canada and North America we have really high rates of pelvic organ prolapse thank you something like mm-hmm. I mentioned yeah and I think that not if we saying do- thank you that we have high rates <laughs> meaning yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up because that's where yeah. I want to go with this conversation around pushing so keep yeah keep going okay so <laughs> I think that if we need to add some extra help and we need to use a conscious effort for pushing, we need to do that in a way that we use the minimal amount of force possible Mm. so that we can help, you know, get our babies aside, but that we don't push all of our organs out Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So because you're an expert in this field, I would like to test my knowledge (laughs) (laughs) and I'm totally willing to be wrong. So I have a bias, um, having worked in the field of birth for many years, especially in instinctive physiological birth paradigm, Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely carry a bias and a position and a belief that we have what's called a fetal ejection reflex. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Odant spoke, uh, Michelle Odant talks a lot about this. And that the idea is that if we just get out of the way, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, if we could move ourselves into that altered state, that birthing labor land, that our biology will find its way. And that if we um, allow the fetal ejection reflex um, to take over, then we'll have short pushing stages and we'll have less fascia drag. So meaning when the baby is coming out of the birth canal, there's less likely that we're going to be dragging all of the um, tissue or what I understood to be the fascia lining with it. Whereas with uh, prolonged pushing stages or um, coached pushing stages that you're actually dragging this um, inner tissue, but you're not making a lot of progress until that fetal ejection reflex actually comes into play. What is your take on that? Well, in terms of fascial drag, I mean, the word fascia refers to just so many different kinds of tissues in the body. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's an, it, right, it's an overarching term for, for a lot of different kinds of... Yeah, there's a ton of fascia in the pelvis. You're literally from on the inside from one hip to the other across the whole way are all kinds of layers... Of fascia. I mean, even the broad ligament of the uterus mm-hmm. becomes quite fascial and connects into the peritoneum of the abdomen, which is, you know, more fascia, which is lining our viscera. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense to me if you have any kind of downward pressure from the top or pulling from the bottom in the case of forceps and vacuum, mm. that you are going to have fascial movement Mm. right you're definitely going to have fascial movement to me the big important piece to consider about potentially fascia or really the connective tissue and in this time rather than fascia so much I'm actually going to refer to perhaps 
for specifics like the uterine ligaments, okay. the connective tissue mm-hmm. that support the uterus. Okay. They are heavily under the influence of pregnancy hormones at this point. They've needed to be for the uterus to grow to that beautiful size of a full term baby, right? All of those ligaments are softening and stretching and they are not like a an ACL in your knee. They are not a big robust tissue. They are often a thinner now stretched and softened tissue. So anytime we add something prolonged or anytime we add something accessory, like with forceps or a vacuum, we're to me adding a bit of risk because those tissues can't stand up to the forces that they could before because they're soft and stretched. Right. So I think we want to, yeah, we want to decrease pushing stages if we can, as long as we aren't, um, increasing the force. So in, yes, with the fetal ejection reflex, mm-hmm. you're going to see that, you know, that's the mother sort of working in that perfect harmony with her own body. But we also know that purple pushing will decrease push times, right? There is research to support that. However, mm-hmm. in my mind, that's risky for, for ligamentous tissue because you're adding so much accessory force. You're pushing way more mm-hmm. than those tissues can potentially with stick. So, so one of the teachings mm-hmm. that I had been taught um, has to do with these two phases of pushing. And, and um, the first phase is actually bringing the baby down. And so often, um, in our more standard approach to, to birth and pushing, we lump them together. And so you're 10 centimeters dilated, and you're instructed to start pushing and that beginning phase is really about the descending of the baby um, deep into the, the pelvic floor before they even get that fetal ejection reflex. And so um, I'm curious if you have a theory or research, like um, anything that suggests that if we um, were to allow for more time for the body to bring the baby down without actively pushing that we would likely decrease a the drag and potentially decrease the risk of prolapse, which is what's bring this conversation is really about <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> In, injury yeah. to the pelvis, pelvic floor. I don't think we have any research. Surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> on that. Um, but yeah, I think it. I'm trying to figure out what I want to say about here because I want to be careful not to make. Um, the description of this overly simplistic, because I don't think it's necessarily also Mm -hmm. that simple. For one thing I just want to bring attention to a little bit is that when we're thinking about the idea of the fetal ejection reflex and sort of that, yeah, what you call that instinctive physiological birth process, Mm -hmm. we may not fully be accounting to some of the biomechanical changes that have gone in on in the pelvis I believe that influence birth so what Mm -hmm. I'm really talking about here is the shape and size of the pelvic outlet so the top of the pelvis where baby first goes in that's the inlet and then at the bottom when baby's finally exiting you know through the pelvic floor through the vaginal opening that's the pelvic Mm. outlet and there is I believe some biomechanical research to suggest that in and I don't have a study to quote me on this, but Katie Bowman might. She's a biomechanist, and I'm pretty sure that's where I've mm. learned this from. Um, 
the shape of our pelvic outlet has changed. So for most North American women, we are not squatting on a regular basis from birth. In cultures where you squat to toilet regularly, where you have that deep squat as a normal part of your life, like on a very regular basis, multiple times throughout the day, all the way down in that full squat, the pelvis and the knees, like your bones physically develop differently. So in cultures that squat, the knee actually has different facets on the bone, like a different shape of the Hmm. bone to allow that motion. So same thing with the pelvis. We think that that pelvic outlet now, that bony shape is potentially different. And what I see more commonly, maybe not even as as severe as potentially a different development in the bones, but more so an adaptation Mm. in the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. Our culture is so sedentary. We do so much sitting. Mm. Most of us don't sit high up on our sit bones with beautiful, perfect posture, it's really hard to hold that position all day long. And if you think about when the pelvis is developing through those adolescent years, most of us are stuck in desks at school and we're slouchy. We're not sitting up tall. We're hanging out however we're hanging out. But most of us are actually doing what I call sacral sitting. We're sitting in a bit of a posterior pelvic tilt with that sac- with the weight on the sacrum. Well, the body is so smart. It's so wise. If we are always having this pressure on the sacrum, pushing it a little bit in, the pelvic floor will adaptively shorten. Hmm. It will adaptively shorten to hold the bone in that position because it requires less energy. So what we see is this adaptive shortening. We see it in other muscles in the body, like commonly in the gastrocnemius in your calf. But I think we see it in the pelvic floor as well. So now we're, we're looking at this physiological process, but we're looking at it in a body that's actually not opt- potentially not optimally shaped from a bony perspective, mm. like from that lack of movement that happens within the pelvis and the hips that comes from things like squatting to mm. toilet. And then also this potentially adaptively shortened. When I say adaptively shortened, I mean actually a decrease in the physiology, the sarcomere length of the muscle. So that's kind of heavy. But what we're saying is that the muscle makes... like a permanent change it's not just tight it changes its structure to hold that space smaller so even if we have you know this fetal ejection reflex that might you know really assist that pushing and you know potentially decrease the amount of pressure that's coming through that and the pull down and the drag Mm -hmm. we still might be meeting this what i think is a really closed Mm -hmm. door does that make sense? Yeah, biomechanically. And so this would be one mm-hmm. of the resistances that you might be referring to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hmm. I feel like, and I mean, you could. some of the midwives I've talked to will say that too, like lots of births go so well and then things just get hung up on that pelvic floor. Like if they could just get that pelvic floor to soften, mm-hmm. right? Would it make it easier in that last bit of time? So in terms of, yeah, I'm not so sure about the two stage physiological pushing. Like I haven't, I haven't been taught it that Mm -hmm. way, but I think what you're saying like intuitively makes a lot of sense to me. Like there's just so much going on Mm -hmm. and the more time that we give, like to allow the tissues to adapt Mm -hmm. right during that process, Mm -hmm. I feel like is going to be more optimal. Mm -hmm. Tissue adaptation does not happen quickly, typically. Mm. No, even with the influence of hormones, right? And at least with birth, we have all those beautiful hormones Mm -hmm. to facilitate that adaptation, but it takes Mm -hmm. time. Just like, you know, the bones, the skull bones in the baby's head take time to mold and and shape. Yeah, time is a a key medicine. (laughs) 
to our birthing (laughs) process. And, you know, so I could, we could keep going down this rabbit hole, but I want to bring it back to this idea of, of pelvic floor injury. And I guess my question to you is the, the pushing or the, the physiological pushing phase, um, a culprit in your experience of some of the pelvic floor um, challenges that you've worked with? I think it very well could be, particularly when it's paired with the traditional lithotomy or gynecological position for birthing babies. And the reason for that is that when you have a woman on her back, her entire body weight works to fix the sacrum and tailbone onto the bed. Like it just can't move, right? It's weighted by her body. But really, the tailbone and the sacrum are the bones that move the most during birth. Mm. So if they're stuck and they can't move, we've narrowed our pelvic outlet even further. Mm. Now we have to add, you know, we've got our physiological push, but if we have to add extra help if we need to now do like you know whether or not it's it's coached or Mm -hmm. not if we have to add that extra help we have to push harder because we're trying to again push through this closed Mm -hmm. door and so when that happens then I think we're at real risk for things for pelvic organ prolapse because we're just generating so much force far more force than is actually needed Mm. so if you could change one thing (laughs) simplified (laughs) yeah (laughs) you could wave a magic wand um i have two questions but if you could wave a magic wand um what would you change in regards to our birthing culture oh getting women off their backs 100 percent. that's been my motto too (laughs) yeah yeah even even something like even something as simple as letting a woman be on her side so even with a heavy epidural where someone's Mm -hmm. you know not able to physically Mm -hmm. move simple and we do have i can think of two research studies off the top of my head that show that sideline deliveries are protective for the pelvic Mm. floor. So I really think that comes down to the sacrum and tailbone. Just let those guys move. They know what to do. Give them the space and the capacity to do that. And the pelvic floor is a lot Mm. happier. I also think there's actually a leg position that I teach a certain position of the femurs and it's actually pretty flexible. It can be incorporated in almost any birthing position a woman chooses. But if you can put, the pelvic floor on a little bit more of an open position instead of a closed one. I think that goes a long way um, in terms of saving, (laughs) saving. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Yeah. So it's a position um, of the femurs. So the femurs are your thigh bones for pretty much every birth. They're going to be abducted or your knees are going to be wide apart. That kind of has to happen. In most birthing positions, the knees are all, your knees are also flexed up, mm-hmm. right? Your hips are flexed up. So you have um, flexion of the femurs as well. But the really magical piece that is not taught but makes such a world of a difference is slight internal rotation of the femurs. So I'm trying to think what mm-hmm. that the best way to describe that because it's kind of a tricky biomechanical concept. Um it's almost like... Like if you're sitting cross-legged? Is that... No? No, like if you were sitting... If you're sitting... Um, 
rotation is mm-hmm. hard to do without a visual in a seated mm-hmm. position. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you were sitting in a normal chair, mm-hmm. like a straight back chair with your feet on the floor, it would be rotating the knees in and letting the heels and feet go wide. Mm. Okay. Okay. So if the trouble is, oh, maybe think of, if you can imagine that lithotomy birth, so a woman up in stirrups, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So her knees are bent up, her knees are apart. We agree that those are needed. But the difference is, instead of her um, knees being wide and at her and like her foot ears. In the stirrup, uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. We do not need that much excessive uh-huh. flexion. But her foot in a traditional stirrup is often on just on the inside of her knee, if you can imagine that. What would be better is if you swung the stirrup wide so that her foot was just outside of her knee. And so her knees were... I don't know if you can visualize Like as if that. her knees were coming together to touch? Um... Not that okay. much. So just a that's little. the other thing. It's tricky. It's just a tiny bit. It's just, yeah, such a small movement. And when I show mm. mothers this, they're always like, oh, <laughs> it's so tiny, but it's so tiny and yet so meaningful. And this creates for the more, floor. like it creates a larger space. Is that the key? Yeah. yeah it opens. You got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Opens the door. Opens the there's door. There's a famous, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a wonderful, um, French obstetrician who's done a lot of work in terms of sort of um, the biomechanics of birthing and pelvic floor health. And her name is Dr. Bernadette de Gasquet, but she has a quote that goes something like, you know, especially when it comes to pushing in the positions, why are we pushing so hard, you know, to a closed door that opens to the inside? Mm. If we could just open the door (laughs) and push through the open door, you know, what amazing world of difference. Mm that might Mm. make so I think when it comes to birth preparation yeah we want to let the uterus do as much of this as possible so beforehand I like to help women figure out if they have areas of resistance Mm. somewhere that we might be able to actually work on decreasing like if I know their pelvic floor is Mm -hmm. tight because by far I see far more tight pelvic floors in the clinic than I do weak ones and this and this Um, would be prenatally and this is why mm -hmm. many pelvic floor therapists are pelvic health what, what is it? pelvic health floor? <laughs> Help me. We don't have a standard okay. term. So you can call us a pelvic okay. floor therapist. Okay. You can call us a pelvic health therapist. You can call us a women's okay. health therapist. That yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> advocates for prenatal uh, appointments, right? So this is something yeah. that I know moms mm-hmm. have said to me, like, I didn't know that I should go prenatally. And now I'm starting to tell people go prenatally. And this is why. You got it. Yeah. Cause I think we can, I think there's a lot to be said for preventative medicine and our poor system does not work on a prevention basis whatsoever. Mm-hmm. We try to fix all these problems afterwards, but I think one of the ways we can potentially, you know, prevent or minimize birth injuries, because let's talk about how common mm-hmm. they are that, Yeah. in mm-hmm. right. Like in Canada, 80% of first time moms are going to have some degree of perineal tearing. And if we're looking at severe perineal injury, which we call oasis, which is like an obstetrical anal sphincter injury, mm. which means a third or a fourth degree perineal tear. These ones are the big bad guys. Um, Canada has shockingly high rates. Okay. So mm. the last stats I could get my hands on, because also the country does not um, release these <laughs> very forthcomingly. But the last stats I could get my hands on, I think, are from 2012. And at that point, mm. 
our rates of severe anal sphincter injury, grade three, four perineal tears, we're sitting somewhere around 7%. Wow. That might not sound terrible, but when you look at countries like England, Holland, um, Japan, they typically have severe anal sphincter injury rates around 0.5 to 1%. So we are seven hmm. times higher than other places in the world. So what that means is it's not about women. Hmm. It's not about our mm-hmm. bodies. It's about the way we mm-hmm. birth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, I'm just pausing because that's substantial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, obviously specializing in birth trauma, that in and of itself is a trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a physiological trauma that's happened. And so we're not just dealing with the, the need to repair. There will be the need to repair the entire nervous system because of its response to such a trauma. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, in my experience of working with moms, this definitely comes into play. The injuries that mothers can sustain um, in their, um, either through cesarean birth or through vaginal birth, um, are a huge piece of their emotional and their mental trauma. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we're whole mm-hmm. bodies, right? None of these systems work in isolation. Our hearts, <laughs> our souls, our spirits, our physical bodies, they're all connected. Mm-hmm. But even if you have injury to just, you know, one of those elements, the physical injuries alone, especially with the severe mm-hmm. tears, are have a huge impact on your quality huge. of life. And not just in the immediate postpartum. We mm-hmm. are talking about, you know, most of the time, we can talk about fecal incontinence here, which is not fun to have for anyone. No tends to show up more in menopause, but particularly in women who've had, you know, those bigger tears. So the problem is you might even have think, you might think that you're healed and you might think you're okay, but then something comes up later, right? Mm. It could be in your 60s and suddenly you're faced with a whole host of problems that you didn't even realize were a possibility that nobody told you about and that nobody helped you heal from, you know, fully in order to prevent that. It's to me, it's just a shocking crime. I, I would <laughs> what agree. We do with maternal oh, health. I would agree. And some of the moms that I've worked with, with, with serious um, tears and what did you call it? Obstet- obstetrical injury. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's absolutely devastating. Um, but for them, it, it was the way that they were treated post-birth where Mm -hmm. they weren't given the resources to heal properly it wasn't even acknowledged that you know that this was going to be potentially have a devastating impact on their health and well-being Um, the the long-term implications of it were incredibly challenging and then they were met with humiliation because it's Absolutely, because to no longer have control to have incontinence, whether it's fecal or um, urine, it's humiliating. Yeah. And the, the, you know, the mental health or even the social emotional repercussions of that are huge, too. Like I know one story that study that shows that in women who've experienced those severe tears and have fecal incontinence in the post in the first year postpartum, Mm -hmm. they're much like less likely to socialize. They're not going to go out because of those like, where's the toilet? Am I going to make it? So they're isolated. Mm They, they don't want to have sex, right? They don't want to do any of that. And they even feel less 
like or less capable to care for their infants. Mm-hmm. So here we come, you know, and there's research to support mm-hmm. this, that how it's even affecting the family unit. Right. Like it, the so far reaching, right? You don't want to go mm-hmm. out. You don't want to see your friends. You don't want to connect with your partner. You don't want to care for your baby. And, and like it's often awful. it's internalized that I'm, I'm broken. Yeah. Because you feel exactly. broken. Something broke. Something dead. Like your, your anus sphincter is broken. Yeah. And there's no... <laughs> consequence to this and this often generates a lot of frustration and anger in moms right Mm -hmm. there is no consequence because the perception is well you're alive and your baby is alive I know yeah I mean that is my dream that we start maximizing instead of minimizing maternal (laughs) health because I truly believe we do not have healthy babies without healthy Mm -hmm. mothers Mm -hmm. We need strong mothers for those strong babies. So let's um, end on a up and out <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some success stories in terms of can we heal? How do we heal? How, what, what magic have you seen and what kinds of things do you do to help? Oh, okay. Lots. Mm. <laughs> and that's what I want women mm-hmm. to know is that first of all, it is never too late for help. I do have a saying, once postpartum, always postpartum. Mm. But that means whether or not you are six weeks postpartum or 60 years postpartum, because I still treat women in their 80s and 90s. Like, it's never too late Mm. to work on this system. The human body is amazing. It's so resilient. It can adapt. It can heal. It's, It's got such an innate capacity for healing. I mean, even, I'll just speak quickly to this, but even my own birth. So my first birth was a traumatic cesarean section my baby had to be forceps out of my belly it was just it was awful I went on to have a v-back at home Hmm. so you know there was a lot of change that went on in that system and then my third birth again not ideal but it, it just represents there's this whole gamut of experience that's possible and that the body can do amazing things hmm with it so I do want to give a little shout out to birth preparation Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know um I do think in my well not not that I think but my here's my dream vision Mm -hmm. my dream vision is that physiotherapy would become the standard of care as part of your pre and postnatal experience so in addition to seeing your primary care provider your physician your midwife you would see a physiotherapist who specializes in pregnancy and postpartum. I like to see women around 20 weeks to start. That's when I like to screen for, you know, these areas of resistance that maybe we can actually start working hmm. on. Maybe your pelvic floor is tight, but we can start helping it to open so that you're not faced with trying to open it fully the first time during mm. birth, right? Mm. So that mm-hmm. you can build this brain map of your pelvis mm-hmm. because the other piece is that... Beautiful. I don't think we have a very well-developed brain map of our our pelvic floors. If you think about the homunculus and the hands representation in the brain, Mm -hmm. your brain knows everything your hand's doing. You get so much sensory feedback from your fingers, from you can see your hand moving, you can feel things, you get temperature, your brain gets all this feedback. But the pelvic floor, Mm -hmm. it's all on the inside. Mm -hmm. We don't even get to see it move. Mm -hmm. We're not really all up in there very often, so we don't really feel it moving. And suddenly... Mm -hmm. You know, most sensations in the pelvis are vague. You can't really pinpoint things. If it's working well, you don't even think about it at all, Hmm. right? Until you start having problems like leakage and pain. But I think 
it would serve us to de- to better develop our awareness in our pelvis, that proprioception, give our brain a really clear connection mm. so that we can actually tap into some of that intuition and some of that body wisdom that may innately be there. But if you've spent your whole life learning how to ignore your body messages because you had to work and didn't have time to stop for a stomach ache or a headache or right. Like we minimize pains all the time. We push, 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 push. Mm -hmm. So if you've practiced your whole life in ignoring your body messages, birth is not the time to expect that you can, you know, suddenly tap in. Maybe you can, but if you spent some time during pregnancy developing that, I think you'd access it even in, mm. a, in a more optimal way. And also reduce the likelihood of shock when all you feel the fullness of mm. a baby entering your, your pelvic region. You know, that can be so overwhelming for so many moms because it's the first time that those areas are being stimulated and ignited. Yeah. So I would imagine that prenatally, this could be very um, therapeutic and helpful in that sense to just um, prepare for that, to the, for that, for that sensation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, again, we're not used to having much sensation there. So really, mm-hmm. any sensation is probably <laughs> going to be a new experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's tricky, but I think the other important reason to do that prenatally is also to establish your baseline Mm. so that after baby comes, you can say, yeah, things feel the same in my pelvis or, oh, they don't, or maybe I need help. Or is this different? I don't know because I didn't know what I had before. You need to know your baseline. You need to know your body before it experiences such drastic changes. Which leads me to my next question. And and I think this will be my final question. We're coming up to our our hour mark. Mm So what is not normal? <laughs> and so what I mean by this is, you know, like my generation, I'm in my 40s, my kids are now, you know, young adults, late teens, and we didn't really have conversations around what to look for. And so to me, you know, it's normal, I have to wear a mini pad. It's normal mm-hmm. that if I jump up and down, I'm leaking. It's normal that maybe I have some pain with sex. It's normal that maybe sometimes it feels like my cervix is falling out of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing that's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But you, unfortunately, a lot of these things are common mm-hmm. and therefore they have been normalized. Good. But I will give you a list. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Listeners okay. are listening. Yes. First of all, pain is never normal. Mm. Pain is always, in my opinion, a message from your body that something's not quite right. And it's a message that's worth listening to. Now, okay, hang on. I'm going to interject mm -hmm. just to plug in the mental emotional. I say Mm -hmm. the same thing. Mental and emotional pain is an indicator from our body that something is not quite right. It's information. You got it. Okay, keep going. And we need to listen to that message, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, a lot of physicians, unfortunately, still say, oh, you're pregnant. Yeah, pubic bone pain is normal or back pain is normal. You mm. know, some discomfort can be associated with the big adaptation and change the body's going through. But again, pain, not normal. Okay. And 
I mean, anywhere in the body. So that could be your knees and your back, but it could be your vagina with sex. And pain with sex is never normal. And it is not something that women need to put up with. Mm. Okay. Mm. I know a lot of physicians say that, you know, oh, you've had a baby. It can hurt for the first six months or the first year. No, that is not true. And Mm. if you're experiencing pain, there's help. There's help and we can definitely improve that experience and normal physiological function is pain-free and hopefully fun-filled sex, right? Like not, not hurting and you don't just have to suck it up. Hmm. So pain, never normal. Leakage of any kind, never normal. That little dribble of urine when you sneeze, that inability to jump on the trampoline, <laughs> you know, that's actually not A normal. Run, Super run. common. Yep. <laughs> Run for the bus, right? Mm -hmm. Or chase after your toddler, want to play tag with your kids in the backyard. You should be able to do that. Now, again, they're common. So here's a scary stat. 50% of Canadian women will experience incontinence by age 65. So that's one in two of us. Okay. That's a lot of women. So it's super common, but I don't want us to think commonality means that it's normal. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not normal. It's a sign that the system is not able to manage the loads and demands that it's faced with. It's not coping well. And therefore the pressure is escaping somewhere. And typically it's urine and it's out the front now, but that could also be fecal incontinence or bowel incontinence or losing some stool, right? That's also not normal and there's help for it. And the last one that people sometimes don't realize, but you should also be able to control passing gas. And if you can't, if you can't stop that fart when you're having tea with the queen, right? That <laughs> That is not normal as well. And you should have control of over all of those hmm. body functions. And further to sort of pain and leakage, Prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse refers to, you know, when one or a combination of your pelvic organs drop a little lower in the bowl than they should, they're often associated with symptoms of pressure, heaviness in your pelvis, um, might feel like you've got a tampon in, but you don't have a tampon in, (laughs) or you might be washing or cleaning or wiping and you notice something bulging in the vagina. Those are all not normal things. And you know, merit some investigation and potentially help as well. Hmm. Is that your list? There's could be more. We could talk about <laughs> abdominal separation uh-huh. just quickly because yeah. that's a common one too. So diastasis recti or diastasis recti mm-hmm. is um, refers to a, a separation in the abdominal muscles. I do actually want to make clear though that diastasis recti is normal during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So 100% of women who get pregnant are going to get some degree of abdominal separation and that's the normal thing. That's your body's wisdom and amazing capacity to open to grow a baby. However, the research suggests that by, you know, 12 weeks postpartum, that should have mostly knit itself back together. So if you still have a gap after that time, it might be worthwhile getting it looked at. How do you check again for the gap? You kind of like, I'm checking my gap right now. (laughs) Yeah, if you're lying... Ideally, you lie on your back with your knees bent up and uh-huh. your feet on the, the bed or the ground. And then most people will start with their sort of fingers around the level of the belly button. Uh-huh. And if you just sort of sink your hand into the level of your belly button and then you lift up your head off the bed. And if your fingers can fit in between your abdominal muscles, then you might have a gap. 
And and now, how um, detrimental is I still have a gap, by the way. Yeah. So and that's <laughs> and that's the big thing. The reason why I sort of bring it up, but sort uh-huh. of don't bring it up. There's a lot that goes into whether or not a diastasis is actually a problem. But I will say hmm. sometimes it's at the belly button, but it can exist the entire length of the linea alba. So it can be up by the ribs or it can be down by the pubic bone as well. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're wide. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're deep and sometimes they're shallow. And so there's actually way more to whether or not a diastasis is a problem. It depends on a lot of those factors. Um, Hmm. So lots of women will mean, and we don't actually know what's normal after having a baby. We sort of, as clinicians, we feel that a little bit more gap after having a baby is normal. Um, But there's no research to suggest what it should be. Mm. And when it's problematic. So you can have women who have a lot larger gap that actually have no problems and it's fine. Mm. So it's, it's, you could get it checked, but it's not always a problem. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes it is and we don't want to ignore it, but sometimes it's not, (laughs) not, not as hard and fast as say the leakage and the pain. Mm -hmm. rules are but that sort of brings me sort of back to that overarching dream that in addition for me like I would love to see all women around 20 weeks pregnant then again I like to see them at 36 weeks where I go over more of the biomechanics of pushing and birthing Mm -hmm. positions but then I would really love to see everyone at six weeks postpartum and I want women to, to also know that you, if you're having problems before six weeks postpartum, you can usually approach a pelvic floor physio before that. Like I know one of the big problems in our care with physicians right now is sometimes women go six weeks without any help. Like they're not sure if things are okay. They don't know what to do about that leakage. They don't know what to do. And we miss this sort of really valuable healing window. So I often encourage my patients to contact me sooner if they think they're having problems that aren't getting better. They don't have to wait six weeks, especially if they've got a really bad perineal tear and they're really suffering. Like you Mm. don't have to tough that out. You can get help beforehand. And most physios will see, you know, women Mm. for that if it's going to be that long. Even if it is six months after and you're still having problems, you can reach out as well. In France, Mm. you know, women get six to 12 visits postpartum covered. I just heard the UK is going to be implementing that for their women, I think, by 2024. So still a number of years away. But they are looking at providing postpartum physiotherapy care as a standard of care in the UK as well. So we're making gains around the world, but Canada needs to catch up a little bit. And if mm-hmm. we could, I would love to see all women, even for a check at that mm. point as well. Well, Mandy, you are a wealth of information and clearly passionate about women's health. And it's, it's wonderful that you're here in Edmonton and that you're teaching and that you're spreading this message. I definitely, 